Welcome back, Rebels. Do you believe that people can change? I 100% believe that people can change. I feel like some people don't want to change, but I feel like everyone has the possibility to do that, yeah. I also agree. There's a very pervasive view that we are set, like, like by a certain age, um, and I think there is science that says like our brain doesn't develop past a, a certain point but there are so many case studies of people that have overcome whatever issues in their life like drug addiction and all of that sort of stuff people that have um, overcome these huge barriers like at any point in their life and there's people in my life that I've seen who are 50s and 60s that have changed things about themselves that have have had personality changes and stuff so I yeah I don't think it's fixed at all yeah, they kind of say like you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but that is completely wrong. And I think what's really interesting, you quite often see change when there has been like some form of trauma, some big kind of form of life. Like so it's kind of shake people have been shaken into it. It's really evident when you look at people who who have changed further along when there has been that something's happened and now they become a different person from it. It makes you realize that actually you could have done that before that bad thing happened, before there was that big shift. And I think we often talk about kind of making your own redundancy package and like setting yourself up for like to make change happen yourself is really important to work out like who who that person you want to be is and how can you change to get there? Yeah, I mean, I've spoken about it on here before, but like that was that was exactly what I did when I realised what a grumpy shit I was being all the time <laughs> um, and just just like wanting to be happier and and through that positivity, it's like... It's like I make a conscious decision to, when I come home from work, like be excited to see my girlfriend and see my sister who's currently staying with us. Like I make that decision to be excited to see them because that is contagious and then everyone is happy. And rather than just coming in and being like, yeah, I'm fucking exhausted, like just sitting down and watching TV or whatever it's like. It's like, no, let's all have a big hug. Let's be excited. And it's like, I have to remind myself to do that on the way home. It's like, it's not this yeah. natural thing. I'm not naturally excited. I I put myself into that state. I think that's a really important thing you said there, the fact that you have to remind yourself in advance because it, it's so hard to do it in the moment. Like you can't just walk, say for example, if you did walk in, because you are physically tired, like your body is actually tired. So to walk into that space, it's just going to want to do what's easiest for it, which is just flop down on the sofa and just be like, oh. whereas actually that's probably not the best way to walk into that situation. And I think having that forethought on anything that you're going to do is always really important. Like I remember reading something about positivity and how kind of to change your mindset on that that kind of wavelength. And it was like this method of every time I walk through a door frame, I'm going to walk through it and be a happier person on the other side. Because then there's that little element of, you know there's going to be a bit of change going to happen here. And because you've told yourself in your mind before you've got there, it then reminds you. So you don't just get through the door and be that kind of tired person you were before. It's that little reminder as you see the door approaching that actually I'm going to come through this a happier person on the other side. There's another one I've heard about door frames that is as you come through, you bring your shoulders back and your chest forward, um, which makes you more confident. And, And also if you can get into the habit of it, like subconsciously then you'll start doing it like in the beginning it will be weird and you have to force yourself yeah. and remember to do it but by the time it's become a, a complete habit for you then when you walk into a meeting or you walk into whatever room like your shoulders are back your chest is forward you just have more of an air of confidence about you yeah that's such a good idea whatever attribute you feel like you could do better in maybe try and do that like have the door frame technique if you want to be more confident like 
do yeah as you said there the kind of like stand up straight up shoulders back walk through kind of like with a big chest and be like I'm a confident person as I walk into that room and it's like no matter what it is you want to improve on maybe try for the next month to just do that and I think even just like just hearing this hopefully that will be a little flick that next time you you're walking down a hallway and you see a door in front of you to think oh, actually I could like change myself as I go through that door. This is really high level stuff but I, I think it's it's really important and, and also really achievable. It does sound completely scary to like change who you are, but it, it's just it's just incorporating small things that want that, that you do want to change, which which does involve a huge amount of self-awareness. You've got to really look at yourself because I know a lot of people do have like a real victim mentality of they are 100% right all the time and the world is against them. Yeah. Which is I mean, it's really sad in the people that you do meet that do have that mentality. Like everyone's out to get me. Like uh, it's it's not my fault that this happened. And I mean, we've all been through shit. We've all been through a lot of like ups and downs. Like that's just being a human. And it's not a competition of who's been through more, but it's like you can either let those losses define your life or you can start to take the power back from that of, of allowing whatever other people have done to you in the past, of allowing that to affect you and to start to take ownership and start to change in the positive way that you want to. It's great to have goals in the future of like, I'd like to be in this job earning this amount of money. I'd like my business to be this successful. But I think it's also really important to have future like personal attribute goals of like, well, what what does that person look like? Yes, they might. It's, it's very easy to make a picture of them and like what they're doing, but what skills do they have? What kind of personality traits have they developed over time? What are they better at? Are they a more confident person than you are, than you are now? Are they more What do their friends say about them? Yeah, that's yeah, it's a really good way to think about it. That is something that people do need to think of too. Like, do you want to be a more confident person? Do you want to have more self-esteem? Do you want to be better at your craft? Like, do you want to be, like, I imagine most people listening will be like, yes, yes, I do want those things. So what you need to think about is, well, what can I do to be able to get more confident, to grow those different personality traits, to help me be that person that I want to be in the future? Which for me just comes down to permanent reminders. And I think the way that I have made changes and continue to make changes, I mean, we're really lucky to have this show because this show is, we record like once or twice a week with different guests. And that is a permanent reminder for both of us of of sitting down with these really inspirational people and just just being like really analyzing what they've done for their success but once you've listened to this episode i know a lot of listeners have like binged our entire back catalog like find other podcasts with other inspiring guests like get that constant reinforcement for yourself of of listening to empowering stuff i really think that's like it's such a key is surrounding yourself with the the content that is is going to push you forward whether that's like as you're scrolling your instagram feed um what like like whether you put up a poster in your bathroom like just being around stuff that is going to constantly remind you like this is the direction i'm going this is the this is where i'm trying to get to and like you mentioned on the on the stuff and the things it's like that's all great and good. And and we said in last week's intro, like that definitely forms part of our goals. But really at the end of it, when that's all said and done and, and you're dead and buried, it's like the way that you made people feel, that is your legacy. The way that someone feels when they're in a room with you, whether they're the the janitor or or they're your business partner, 
the way that they feel when they're around you? Do do they feel happier when they're with you than when they're without you? That's that's really what matters. One thing that I do, which I think is is quite good, it works for me anyway, is if I want to get into something or learn about something, I'll maybe buy a few different books on that like topic and then just have them they'll be in a few different places around my house so there's like one next to my bed there'll be one kind of in the lounge on the bookshelf like next to where I'll generally sit in the evening and it's always that little reminder of like oh I want to get better at that and yeah never letting yourself forget and also I think it can be easy to just be like well I want to get better at all these things but it's often better to kind of do one at a time and like be like okay well I want to grow my confidence so I'm going to buy a few different books around confidence and then have them around different places where I can listen to them. Just little reminders that come up quite regularly. And I know a thing that quite a few people do as well is they'll set like little reminders on their phone. So every single day at a certain time, it flashes up to tell them something. So if you do want to get reminded about something you're trying to progress at, set that, just go on your phone, just set it to remind you every single day at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m., for example, to just remind you to be more confident or to whatever it is you want to get better at just set up those things around you constantly that constantly remind you of what you're trying to achieve yeah because at the end of the day you are the boss of you and this this change can only happen from actions that you take and if you take actions things will change and it might be over a long timeline but ultimately you you are responsible and I think that's one thing, like when we called listeners out a few weeks ago, like the DMs that we were getting from people that were just like, yeah, that you, you really spoke to me. It's like, it's like, yeah, you fucking you, like this is down to you. You've got to do it. No one else is going to do it for you. So if you want these changes, if you want, and it, it reminds me of that quote, I can't remember who says it, but it's like extraordinary people do extraordinary things. And and if you look at the flip side of that, that means like, <laughs> like regular people do regular things and yeah. it's like if you're not doing anything extraordinary or you're not striving to do something extraordinary or you're not pushing your work forward to become to like to really become great because you can do that you've just got to put the time in and it might be 10 years until you become great but eventually on a long enough timeline you will become great and but but only if you've like if you've got that action like that you've got that like focused I'm going to become really good at this. I'm going to become the best at this or like one of the best in my field. Like that's that's where you need to be pushing towards. Yeah, there's something you said a minute ago when you said um, you are the boss of you. And I was thinking about that recently. And because I feel like it's a great phrase and people say like you are the CEO of your own life and that kind of thing. But I never really thought about like what that meant and then how to actually put it into application. And I think just imagine it like even if you don't have any employees, just imagine you've got an employee you want them to be more confident or you want them to be better at something what would you tell them to do if you think like well how would I make this other person do it and then whatever you that answer is that's what you need to do to yourself I mean it's sort of depressing but but something that I heard that's always stuck with me that is people will do what they want and I think that is such a true statement of of like if you decided that you were going to be really motivated during lockdown and all you ended up doing was eating Doritos and watching Netflix, it's like, at the end of the day, that's what you wanted to do. Like you didn't want to do the thing that you thought you should do. You didn't want it enough. So maybe your motivations for doing that thing need to be looked at. Um, But at the end of the day, like, yeah, you, you are the CEO of your own life. You are the boss of you. And if you want these things, like it may, like, 
it involves sacrifice. Like you might have to sacrifice some money. You might have to sacrifice some time with people that you care about. You might have to sacrifice something. But in order to like reap those goals of of that utopia that you can see in the future, like that future version of yourself that you want to be, you've got to put the work in to make that happen. It doesn't just happen magically. Yeah, literally like anything that you want to learn, anything that you want to get better at, it can happen because someone has done it before. You just need to have that mindset shift of I can do this and I'm going to do it and it just needs to become a habit. And I think this week's guests talk about that perfectly and how you can bring humour how you can become a funny person and people will often say like oh well, i'm not funny but you can learn to do that yeah literally they they prove that that being funny is a learnable skill so you can all become funny little beans if you want to and and i mean why wouldn't you want to like making people laugh is is fucking beautiful man yeah. like it's one of the one of the most amazing gifts in the world and and it's a teachable skill so that is pretty incredible so let's get into this week's episode. Yes, Naomi Bagdonis and Dr. Jennifer Aker are colleagues at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Their book, Humor Seriously, explains how humor can be a superpower that many of us aren't utilizing. And it breaks down the data that shows being funny can bring big rewards. In this episode, we talk about friends, creativity, and being silly. Yeah, if we're able to to say th- silly things and be unfiltered, then we can actually hone, we can get feedback from people, we can hone our own sense of humor. So you guys have written a book, have you not? And uh, I, I have, in fact, read this book and it's very good. So well done, you. And one thing you talk about in the book is the uh, four humor myths. So could we do a little rundown on what those myths are? Absolutely. Um, so first of all, I'd just like to thank you for that incredible introduction. <laughs> we do have a book. You're right. And, and it is quite good. Um, <laughs> and one of the, one of the best parts of the book is, uh, indeed these, these humor myths. So one of the most important ones is if you look at the, um, at our research and other research, we find that individuals when they are 17, 18, 19, 20, they laugh a lot. Like this is large scale data, Gallup based data showing that people report to smile and laugh a lot in each day. And it all of a sudden plummets from like 85% saying I smiled and laughed yesterday to all the way down to about like, you know, 60%. Um, and it plummets around age 21, 22, 23, right when everyone gets into the workforce. So there's something about being at work that makes everyone all of a sudden not use humor, basically not smile or laugh. And the question is why? One of the myths is that, um, that humor, um, when you're doing sort of things that are important or serious or taking yourself seriously, can come at cost at um, to what you want to do and how you want to do it. That humor and levity can't coexist with being important, doing serious things, or doing meaningful things. So humor um, and being orthogonal to seriousness is is one of the myths. That is not true. And and I and I think that's that's such a um, that's such a built up sort of stereotype that we feel that if we're going to be funny, that that would be perceived as unprofessional in the workplace. Exactly. Naomi actually has a great story about this. Naomi, you want to share? I do. I have a great story. 
You do have a great story. I yeah, I was the archetype of the um, serious business myth, which, as Jennifer said, is essentially the myth that you can't take your work seriously and do serious things while having a sense of humor. And so this was my sort of first five or six years of my career was working in a professional environment and essentially leading a double life where at work I was polished and austere and really good at my job. And then outside of work, I was doing, you know, improv comedy. I was painting. I was, I had this incredibly rich, um, life that was punctuated by humor and levity. And I really had none of that at work. And, uh, this all sort of came to a head when a client of mine told me that she envisioned my life as a, um, gray walled, um, you know, pretty laughless place where I watched history channel documentaries and, uh, re-ironed blouses for my, my next week on Friday nights, um, with a cat named cat. And, um, and so it was this, this moment of realization where I, um, you know, I saw just how little of myself I was bringing to work. And at the same time, I knew that it wasn't sustainable. You know, I was, I was operating in a way that was trying to get my goals achieved and then basically get out of there and get to a place where I could really be myself. What was it about that that made you feel like you couldn't be yourself? Yeah, I think there's, I think it is this myth and this pressure of, you know, especially as someone in lower status in an organization, I was starting out in my career that, um, that I would not be taken seriously. And Jennifer mentioned this global humor cliff that we see where around age 23, people just stop laughing. They stop smiling. And, and this, the root of this is this misperception that we can't have humor and be funny at work, which is completely backwards. We believe. And, and as you know, from the book and from the research, there is a wealth of, behavioral research that shows that bringing levity and humor to work actually makes us more productive, more creative, more resilient in difficult times. It can boost our status and power. Um, and so, and so we're the aim of this book and sort of our goal, you know, in the world more broadly is really to, to topple this, um, this misperception. Do you think that's because humor is kind of seen as, I think when people think of humor, I think people initially think of like slapstick being silly, like acting like a clown rather than the more kind of witty, sensible kind of humor that would actually do really well in the workplace. Obviously, if you cream pied your boss, there's going to be a bit of an issue there and that might affect it. But just I think by having just like a positive, upbeat attitude, making like if there's something bad that's happened, making a joke out of it can lighten that whole situation so it can be used in more effective ways. Absolutely. So, um, David, we're going to ask you a question about Adam. Okay. Um, and then Adam, we'll ask you a question about David. All right. So we find that there's essentially these four humor types. So one of them, to your point, Adam, is very much kind of the stand up and it's bold and irreverent and roasting. It's a natural entertainer. There may be a whoopee cushion, you know, by the side or a cream pie, um, a prop in that person's office. Um, and they are thick skinned. They don't mind being the butt of the joke, but they may prank, curse, you name it. All right. So that we call a stand up. So David, I want you to like let Naomi and I know what you think Adam is and vice versa. The second is the sweetheart. That person's earnest and honest and more modest in their use of humor. They're more understated and um, not necessarily interested in being spotlight and they prefer to maybe plan out their jokes. Definitely. They carefully avoid humor that might risk hurting feelings. 
Third, the sniper, dark, edgy, sarcastic. They have an acquired taste. Uh, they're dry and deadpan humor. They're unafraid to cross a line for a good zinger, and but they're differ- discerning with laughter, so you have to earn it. And the fourth and last is the magnet, which is uplifting and more positive and wholesome. They're animated. They're often smiling and radiating uh, charisma. They'll laugh easily at others' humor. So, David, tell it to us straight. What do you think Adam is? Mostly and maybe secondarily. Uh, Adam is definitely a sniper. He is ruthless. Um, he, <laughs> he, like, he is not afraid to just hit you exactly where it hurts. Um, he, he's, he's a very good observer of everyone's weaknesses, uh, and he knows exactly, exactly how to zoom in on that, that, on that very specific thing that you're worried about and take the piss out of you ruthlessly. So he's a sniper, but he does have, he does have, um, little touches of, of up as well. And then Adam, what do, you, what do you think David is? I think David's probably the same. I think he's not like a silly kind of like, but again, it's like, I think there's different sides to people in different situations. Because like for me, for example, I feel like if I'm performing in front of people, I'll act a different way to how I am around like my peers and people I feel more comfortable with. Like I'll definitely like absolutely shoot down people that I know and kind of give them a false sense of security to release something and then I'll just absolutely snipe them with it. Um, but yeah, I'd say David's, David's quite similar. He's, yeah, he has definitely that kind of, it's, it's hard to make him laugh. Like it's not like he will just not laugh at anything. There's a lot like most stuff you just be like, that's rubbish. No, I'm not having that. But then actually when you do find something that gets him, you like, he's like, will absolutely crease over it. I, I think both of us, we don't, we're not ever um we're not going after laughs but but when they when they approach us we're very quick to see the opportunity and just go for it we both love a pun so like any time that something's said and we can like use a bit of kind of wordplay to throw something back into the mix that's something that we both do a lot love that the the point that david you brought up about <clears throat> we're not actively looking for laughs like we're not the ones who are cracking jokes who are trying to um to crack everyone up Th- that is a really important that's a really important concept in this whole um piece of work that we're you know that we're trying to promote here is it's really not about being funny you know that you have these different styles and the goal is to activate whatever your, your unique sense of humor is but more importantly that than that we talk about activating a mindset of levity so just looking for reasons to be delighted looking for navigating the world on the precipice of a smile and looking for things that might tilt you over the edge and that's the kind of thing you know adam you said that you and david have good banter with each other right it's like we'll we'll look out for something and if he says something i'll jump on it and i'll build on it that's another part of this mindset is just looking for things to escalate looking for little windows that our colleagues or our friends give us where we can escalate that humor and say yes to it do you guys have um, types that you identify with or because you've done so much kind of research on this, do you kind of pull from all areas? All areas, yes. Every every area that exists, that is where we pull from. Because you're so funny. <laughs> yeah, all it's really, time. it's like hard being yeah this funny all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the biggest disappointment when we go on podcasts. They're like, all right, make us laugh. That is a joke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I would say my natural style is uh, magnet. 
but it really depends on the context. So as an example, if I am facilitating a session with a group of executives, so I, I run these uh, innovation, creativity and innovation workshops with boards or you know leadership teams of companies. When I'm in that situation, if I am... Um, if I am, let's say, in a group of people who are mostly 15 years my senior or who are, you know, CEOs from different companies, they're on the board, I may flex more towards sniper style humor. And so that is sort of um, the style that's most effective with people who might be of higher status or who might be used to um, people being very deferential to them. I can also get more goofy as well because I'm credentialized and I'm, you know, in a position of power in that as well. Um, but shift to when we're teaching in the classroom, and this is something I actually learned from Jennifer, um, from her experience teaching, when you're in the classroom and you're sort of the highest status person in the room, you're the, you know, you're the lecturer, you're the professor, you really have to lean on more communal humor. So that's sort of sweetheart style and more magnet style leaning away from anything that may be, you know, teasing or more sniper style to sort of create that community and not alienate people. You mentioned being in the boardroom there. Could you tell the story of when Craig had uh, tried to shoot you down? Sure. Yeah, this was um, so I would say if my first story of, you know, my client describing me as a cat lady um, you know, on Friday nights was sort of my aha moment. Number one in my career, my moment with Craig was my aha moment. Number two. So this was again, pretty early in my career. And I was facilitating a, a workshop with a group of executives. Craig was the most senior executive in the room. And, um, and I was sort of midway through my workshop and the entire time Craig was pretty disengaged. You know, he's sort of leaning back. He had his arms crossed or his hands behind his head in, you know, sheer power pose position. And at this moment in time, I was not using a lot of comedy. I was not using a lot of humor in my career, but I had been doing improv on nights and weekends. And it was something that was really um, that I really loved and is a really big part of my personality. So about halfway through the session, I was talking about, you know, how to improve your team's team dynamics. And Craig made a, a biting comment like, hey, can you just cut to the part where you tell where you t tell me how to make my team do what I want them to do while making them think it's my idea? You know, it's like some biting comment. And it sort of was like a record record screech moment where everyone was like, yeah. oh, that was kind of uncomfortable. And. In that moment, I shot back without thinking about it. I said, oh, great question, Craig. You know, you're thinking of the session that I run on mind control and you're you're welcome <laughs> to come back next week. And this is like, you know, in the context of funny jokes, this is not a funny joke. But in the boardroom that day and in the context of what we were there to talk about, it was actually, you know, kind of funny. And so what happened was this dramatic shift in that moment where everyone laughed and then everyone's head swiveled and turned to Craig. And for the first time all day, Craig smiled. And then he said to me, I shit you not, this is word for word. I respect you. You can continue. And so I did. And, uh, and it was this turning point. You know, he and I actually became close and he became sort of a mentor of mine. He emailed my CEO afterwards and um, and said really great things about my performance. But I really do think it was because of that moment where I used humor and really sort of sniper style humor um, to, to establish status and to take him down a bit.
See, I feel like it can work really well and it, it works the same when we do talks in places that if you do something that's out of the normal, so it's like by adding a joke into somewhere where a joke wouldn't normally be or to say something where, so often when we do university talks, the way we'll approach it will be very different to the normal people that will come and talk to them at university. Normally it'll probably be someone in a suit who's probably a bit dull as two idiots turn up with baseball caps on swearing and they're like people just seem so much more engaged and they laugh a lot more because it's something so different it's something that they're not they don't something they didn't expect to see before they got there yeah no no offense to you guys because i'm sure that when you're teaching your classes you're you're not boring but um but but typically that's that is when you sit down to a university lecture you're not expecting to be entertained and i think a lot of people come to our talks they've been dragged along by their friend or whatever and they don't actually realize that they're they're what they're going to get and so then when we do come on and we do throw a little bit of humor into that because what i i love i love public speaking because it's it's a chance to like stand-up comedy, I think, is such a, a skill and an art. But but as soon as you declare you're a stand-up comedian, it's like, okay, well, be, go and be funny then. Whereas public speaking is a wonderful way to have an audience in front of you. They're not expecting you to be funny, but you can stand in front of them and you can throw those bits in. And because it's so unexpected, it actually has more impact. Yeah, absolutely. One of the uh, the first pieces of advice from any stand-up comic talking to a lay person will be never start a joke or a funny story with, I have a joke to tell you, yeah. or I have this funny story to tell you, right? It totally, it gets rid of your power of misdirection. It makes people exactly yeah. as you, as you said, David, it puts them on their backs, on their, on their heels, right? They cross their arms. They're like, okay, well, let's see what you got. So on the note of, of you, you teaching this course, how the hell did you get away with that? Well, we, we proposed it to the deans with a, an edge of humor and they all of a sudden just said yes. Um, no, actually Stanford does a really good job of being very entrepreneurial with the types of classes that are offered. And the thing that's interesting about this particular class is it's really rooted in behavioral science. And so because there's such a strong foundation for the class, you know, it was really easy to kind of build on it and then infuse it with these tools from stand-up comedians, as well as bringing in leaders that that use humor effectively. So, for example, Secretary Madeleine Albright uh, would come into the class and and talk about how she uses humor and levity in these like sort of small, innocuous but incredibly impactful ways when negotiating, for example, with the KGB or, you know, from a, a diplomatic perspective. But we'd also have Seth Meyers from Late Night or Julia Louis-Dreyfus come in and deconstruct um, how humor is used in this, you know, very scientific way. Most people feel that humor is this kind of innocuous thing. You're either funny or you're not funny. Or to Adam's point, you know, you either have like a whoopee cushion and a cream pie by your side or you don't. But in fact, it's much more nuanced than that. And it's much more um, a strategic tool that really smart leaders use, um, you know, to diffuse tension, to increase status, to build bonds. And then as Naomi said, to spark creativity. So I think that was, that was kind of how we got through it. And now it's, it's one of the most, I don't know, it's I will go ahead and say it. it is one of the most important and popular classes at Stanford. So would you say you can learn to be funny? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our students, um, they come in on day one and they look like deer in the headlights, you know, what to expect, how do they think of themselves? Um, and we do this really um, sort of interesting humor audit, which is the most fun audit 
you have ever taken. And we simply ask them questions like, take note this first week, how many times did you laugh? And how many times did you make someone else laugh? And just a journal, very simple exercises. Um, the results are inevitably horrifying. One of our students said, um, wow, it was Tuesday. I did not laugh once. Who knew a class on humor could be so soul crushing and depressing. <laughs> but by the end of the class, they, they report, uh, report dramatically different results. Um, and it's not just that they became funnier, although they did through these very sort of simple sort of, you know, activities that we can go into if you want. But it's also that they were more generous with laughter and they looked for, for levity and humor, um, and, and sort of, took this mindset of levity and, and, and laughed when um, maybe otherwise they wouldn't have. And so that whole sort of outlook or mindset, we find it has a dramatic impact, not just on their demeanor, but also on the demeanor of their teams, um, other students, their family members. It has a dramatic impact on them over the course of those eight weeks. Yeah, that's really interesting because I feel like people don't often look at all those little funny bits in their day. They just kind of let them pass them by because I feel like you, they just become the normal of like, yeah, that happened, that happened, but you don't ever stop and appreciate it. And I feel like sometimes people dwell too much about the bad things that are happening because they're quite big and they don't really think about the little bits of happiness that they have along the way. So to actually be able to frame your mind so you actually stop and notice those things a lot more, I think is really, really important. Yeah, that's a great, so one super fast activity, a, a levity hack that you can do every day is just at the end of every day, write down three funny things that happened that day. And they don't have to be fully baked. They don't have to be things, you know, stories that you would tell at a party. Just go back through your day and and try and remember little moments that made you smile or where you had a little bit of joy. And better yet, share them with someone. So get a, a, a buddy and share your three things at the end of every day. And this is something we have our students do. And what it leads to is by day 10, they're reporting. They don't know, you know, they can write down 20 things. At the end of day one, they look yeah, back and they're yeah. like, oh, shoot, I had a laughless day. As Jennifer said, like on Tuesday, I didn't laugh once. And then by day 10, it's like, oh, OK, great. Yeah, I can do this very, very quickly. And that's not just because they're creating more humor in their lives. More importantly, it's because they're they're looking out for it. They're noticing it. And they're just a little bit more on their toes when it comes to reacting to humor or creating it. So you, you mentioned the, the sort of the quiz thing that you get the students to do. I did a quiz once back in the 90s <laughs> and it was, um, what what member of friends are you? I always remember this. I was probably like 16 and um, and it told me that I was... Wait, pause. Like, Hold on. Adam, what member of friends would you guess that David was? Ross. <laughs> no, I don't actually think that. I just said that because I know that would get the response. Uh, who would I actually think he would be? Um, probably Chandler. Well, in fact, it was Chandler. And, um, and, but what it said at the end is, um, you always say the joke, even if it's not funny, you say it anyway. And I kind of took that on. And I think as I was like, like going into college and like meeting new people and like what like wanting to be liked one of the ways I did that was definitely with humor and after I did this quiz and realized that I was Chandler Bing I actually which is I just horrible I mean just horrible but I was no, young I was, I, I was 16 no yeah, oh, Chandler, no everyone loves Chandler 
Who would you rather be more than Chandler? I, I despise the entire cast of Friends. I just, I oh, hate, well, I hate the whole show. Why did show. you take the quiz, David? Because I was 16, okay? <laughs> it was it was peer pressure. Um, it was in the 90s, Naomi. The 90s were just one big blur. And and like, you, you couldn't not watch Friends. Like, you would get bullied for not watching it. I had to pretend that I liked it. Anyway, um, but, but I did always remember the thing of like, just say it, even if it's not funny. And I think that was how I kind of, because um, I, I know we were going to do all the, the myths at the beginning. We kind of, we got distracted, but but one of the, the myths is like believing that your jokes will fail. And I think through doing that of like, of just saying any, whatever stupid shit came into my head, I would just say it and see where it went. And then I kind of learned okay, this is funny, this is not so funny. And and that allowed me to kind of shape my humor and, and know what I could do to get a laugh. Yeah, yeah, that's, there's incredible value. So first of all, sorry that we got super distracted and didn't go, we, we got, we hit on one myth. Although I will <laughs> say that you're the one, David, taking us down the 1990s friends uh, role where you got bullied into taking quizzes. Just, just saying. But I'm such a pro that I brought it all the way back around. So don't forget <laughs> that. Um, but you're so you're so right that there's research that shows when we um, when we fail, it's actually not as bad as we think. As long as we're staying appropriate, it actually still increases others' perceptions of our of our confidence and doesn't impact our status. And so, yeah, if we're able to to say th- silly things and be unfiltered, then we can actually hone. We can get feedback from people. We can hone our own sense of humor. And there's another power in feeling free to saying. Um, to sing silly things. So um, Astro Teller, who leads Google X, um, X, which is Google's moonshot group. So this is a group who their their mission is to um, tackle the world's most intractable problems with the speed of a startup. So they are, they need to be a creativity and innovation engine. And one technique that Astro uses with his team is what he calls the bad idea brainstorm. And so Instead of saying, okay, great, everyone, I want us to come up with our best ideas. He says, all right, everyone, I want us to come up with the worst, silliest, most ridiculous, will never happen ideas possible. And what he finds and what we have found in our work is that by freeing people of this pressure to be normal, um, we are able to unlock our more creative selves. And so when we shut off that voice in our heads that says, oh, I don't want to say something silly, um, then we are able to sort of come up with these ideas that are um, that are totally wild and totally weird and sometimes actually really good. By doing that, you've you've given everyone in the in the room the permission to to have a bad idea, and it makes me think of of so your light bulb moment was when you were basically described as a boring person and you realised that there was a lot more going on that people weren't seeing. One thing we do with our team is show and tell, and we thought we knew these people really, really well. And it's not until you do show and tell and, and people come in each week with something that's that's personal to them that you actually realize, oh, I, I had no idea you were into gardening or you cook Italian meals at the weekend or like whatever the thing is that they, that they bring in on their day. And until you sort of like get to know people and give them the the sort of security to have a bad idea. I don't think you can foster creativity in the workplace at all because everyone is too scared to show their their true feelings or say an idea in case it gets shot down. Yeah, I agree. I feel like bad ideas as well lead to good ideas. If you just like 
if 2% of all ideas are great ideas that are going to change the world, you need to do 100 ideas to be able to get those. So I feel like that's such a great example because it's like, just keep having the ideas because one of those could lead to something. And I think, especially when you do things in a group, like when we do things in a studio, it's like if people shout out what would seem as a stupid idea, that then may spur someone else to think of a great idea. But unless that person had the confidence to say that initially, that second idea that came off the back of it would never have happened. Yeah, exactly. So there are two mechanisms happening there. The first is that if you're shouting out weird ideas, some of them are going to be funny. So you're going to laugh. And what we know about laughter is that it changes our brain chemistry. It suppresses the release of cortisol. And you can think of cortisol as your um, brain security alarm system. So if you're sitting in a room trying to be creative and the alarm is going off and there's smoke coming, you know, under your, your bedroom door, it's really hard to be creative in that, in that um, environment. So the first thing that's happening is our security alarm system is going down. We're less fearful of saying something wrong. And the second thing is exactly what you're saying, which is that we're not constrained by what we believe can be or what we believe should be. And therefore, these ideas that we come up with, even if they're silly and ridiculous, they can be tangential stepping stones to something that's actually really interesting and out there. And also, I feel like with ideas, it's like going to the moon at one point would have sounded like a ridiculous, impossible thing. A car would have at some point been a completely ridiculous thing. So I think just by having those ideas, no matter how silly they seem, they could turn into something which could be real. And I feel like that's where innovation happens. Yeah. Early in my career, and we were, I was working in this creativity and you know this innovation group within a large firm. Um, one of my mentors gave me this book, um, Orbiting the Giant Hairball. Have you guys read this book? I haven't read it. No, but I love this title. So yeah, it's Orbiting the Giant Hairball, A Corporate Fool's Guide to Surviving with Grace. And there's a Rumi quote in the beginning of it. And this quote goes, think of how it is to have a conversation with an embryo. You might say, the world outside is vast and intricate. There are wheat fields and mountain passes and orchards in bloom. At night, there are millions of galaxies and in sunlight, the beauty of friends dancing at weddings. You ask the embryo why he or she stays cooped up in the dark with eyes closed. Listen to the answer. And the embryo says, well, there is no other world. I only know what I've experienced. You must be hallucinating. And I love this Ooh, idea so of, nice. you know, creativity is not just imagining what, um, what is or could be. It's, it's imagining what has never been you know, going to the moon or, um, or thinking totally broadly outside of what our current orthodoxies and our current understanding of what should be is. Have you guys done any research into the history of humor? Is it, and, and is it only human beings that, that laugh and find things funny? Ooh, that's such an interesting question. We've never been asked that question before, but there's, there's, we've, we have gone deep on sort of the history of, of happiness um, which is kind of a close conceptual cousin to, to humor, right? Um, one of the interesting things about the history of happiness is, you know, it wasn't until, till, um, gosh, maybe a hundred or 200 years ago that people actually prioritized happiness, that we have the right to actually feel, feel happy, laughter and humor being a manifestation of that. And, um, and now I think, you know, we're, we're at a point in time where, at least in America, this idea of, you know, we deserve to be happy. Um, we, you know, we, we deserve to have, you know, kind of this sense of pleasure and delight in the day to day and broader 
um, has actually become something that that is, I think, even a detriment uh, in, in in America. And um, and so I think we're looking at a reckoning a reckoning of this, especially with COVID and other you know, huge challenges. In one of the um, classes that Naomi and I teach, we uh, it's called the new type of leader. We very much anchor people on, you know, how do you be anchored on something that's meaningful and purposeful? So, you know, knowing the why you're doing what you're doing, but being fueled by humor and levity. So that's kind of the how. And I think that that approach, you know, is is one thing that I think you'll you'll see moving forward, especially for 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 leaders. If we can be more focused on what's really meaningful, which is oftentimes quite hard, it's very long lasting. It's about sustainable change. It's about serving others, not just ourselves, but also you know do so in a way that is authentic um, by not taking yourself so seriously and being able to kind of move ahead. And I think all of the leaders that we really spotlight in our book. You know, from Sarah Blakely to, you know, Eric Schmidt or Tim Brown. These are CEOs of, you know, Spanx or Google and IDEO. All of these individuals, I think, really prove that out. So hopefully moving forward, um, we'll be able to, to make positive change in ways that are very meaningful. But Naomi, I hope that, that the how and the way we do that is very authentic and agile and, and, you know, leverages humor. From all the people you've interviewed and talked to, do you think people prioritize happiness or do you think they prioritize wealth and other things above that? Yeah, so we have a lot of research around this. This idea of prioritizing not just um, short-run happiness or how you feel right now, but all, yeah. of, the, uh, all of the things that go with, go with that is absolutely something that most humans um actually sort of suffer from. In fact, some of our research shows that the meaning of happiness shifts in really systematic ways over the life course. So we start out, you know, kind of in this mindset of like excitement is really, really, um, you know, the definition of happiness. And so you're making people laugh. You are excited about the future. Um, And then we move to this idea of power or conquering the world where money, power and status are often commingled with what we think drives our happiness. Yeah. Um, but then we move to to balance and understanding how our families and um, our health are are impacting our happiness and feeling how can we get aligned across these different domains. That, by the way, is oftentimes where humor plummets. That there's so much juggling that's going on that parents and work, especially working parents, just stop laughing. Period. Then we move to impact, where the meaning of happiness is about meaning and impact and significance in our lives and serving others. And then we move to savoring, where just these small moments of laughter and being present with others really defines our happiness. And so I shared that research because, um, to your point, Adam, this idea of wealth or and all the, the sort of symbols that are associated with, you know, what would make us happy, you know, that that bubbles up usually around the 20s and the 30s. But as we uh, get wiser and older, they really change. Um, And what we find actually in the last chapter of our book, um, it's really about the regrets of the dying and how do you live a well-lived life? And what's so fascinating about that last chapter of, of the book is it unpacks how humor really is a secret weapon in each of these kind of phases in very different ways. It, le- it allows you to live more boldly, authentically, be more present, 
more joyful and actually demonstrate and exude love and value for others. It's, it's funny, like my view of, of an older person that's happy, the word that always like comes to me is like jolly, because you always think of, of like, uh, if an old person is like laughing, and they're jolly, then they've lived a happy life. It is sort of this like, this sort of symbol of just being carefree is just is laughing a lot. Mm. And definitely when it comes to like families and stuff like that, like when you see when you see a husband and wife that don't hate each other, that can actually like still laugh with each other. It's like, it's such a, I guess it's such a strong sign of a healthy relationship. Yeah. These moments of laughter, what we find for couples is that these moments of laughter are not just, they have compounding effects. And so we know that when you ask couples to reminisce about moments when they laugh together versus moments that were positive or moments that were neutral, when you have couples tell stories of those moments of shared laughter, and then you actually ask them how satisfied they are in their relationships, those couples recall, they, they report being more satisfied in their relationships just from telling a story about laughing together. And so it's incredible what's important to recognize about these moments of joy that we share is that they don't, they don't just exist in that moment. They have a really long tail and they compound over time. Yeah, I think that's a really great point because I know like when me and my girlfriend are like just chatting about stuff, like we'll often, because we've been together for like 10 years now, so a really long time. And we'll often just look back over like fun things that have happened and you can still like laugh about and joke about. And obviously the longer the relationship goes on, more things like that that come up and it, we won't ever get bored about talking about those same things again and again and again. There'll be like certain moments that have happened, which we've probably referred to like hundreds of times because just by saying it again, it just makes us laugh again or brings back that like little bit of happiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Jennifer, you you describe in the book about um, a conversation around the dinner table where you're rating rating everyone's um, funniness, and and it seems like dads always get always get rated the the funny one, and that's what what happens in your story. Do do you think women find it harder to? say I am the funny one or to be taken seriously when they're being funny? Is there kind of a line that you have to draw of of like funniness and professionality at the same time? Like what's like what what is uh, the what am I trying to say? What hole am I trying to dig for myself here? <laughs> no. Just help me out here. <laughs> You keep going, David. We are fa- keep going. Twenty five minutes later. <laughs> no, I will. I will interrupt you. Um, so you're completely right um, that there are these gender differences in in humor styles and the propensity to use humor. I was livid when I learned that all of the second graders that I was teaching in when I sort of volunteered to teach in my daughter's class. Um, when I said, you know, who's the funniest person, you know, every single one said their dad and maybe a couple said their brother. Um, only one kid out of like 30 said um, a female and that was herself and which I fit on <laughs> you. Right. And, you know, we don't have research to show exactly why this happens, but we do know, remember the four humor styles, women are much more likely to self-identify as magnets or sweethearts, much more than men. And men are 1.6 times more likely to self-identify as stand-ups or snipers as compared to women. So um, there's something about, you know, the risks associated with humor 
Um, but they, that I think females feel, feel to a greater degree, especially in the workplace. We find that a lot of the, the leaders that we interview or bring into the class, um, are much more apt and able to use humor in these sort of strategic ways when they're men versus females. And which is horrifying because all of these benefits associated with using humor, uh, in the workplace, um, are sort of missed by, by many women. I guess that gives you a secret weapon if you're female and listening to this, knowing that you can that you can adapt to those things. Because I mean, we used there used to be that like kind of bullshit thing of how there weren't many female stand ups, um, and and the the ones that there were were always kind of falling into the same categories and talking about the same things. And I don't think we have that anymore. But then recently, I've been seeing like arguments going on 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 TikTok where young boys specifically are saying to young girls specifically girls aren't funny you can't be funny and and i've seen a few videos of girls kind of answering back to that and and like completely shutting down these boys and destroying them which is great um but but yeah i suppose there is just a lot of baggage that we've that we've come through and i guess we're still coming through of of this kind of just just bullshit myth of that women can't be funny i wonder if that's with young people because i can imagine like Young boys, are, like young girls seem a lot more mature than young boys. So I imagine for a young boy, like a fart joke or something like really immature would be really funny to like young lads. Whereas girls are pretty just a bit like, that's just petty. Yeah, they're operating on a higher level. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I wonder if that almost gets implanted at that age where they kind of think, well, they're not funny and because they've already decided that. So we don't even give it a chance later on. Mm, yeah, that that makes total sense. There's... Um, it also makes me think, you know, we, uh, we celebrate or traditionally we have celebrated different characteristics in little boys versus little girls. And, um, mm. you know, and for little boys, it's, um, status matching, it's standing out, it's, um, you know, being the class clown is sort of a more is associated as a more male thing. And for little girls, it's oftentimes keeping peace. And especially in the way that social dynamics work for little girls, um, you know, never, never stepping on anyone's toes, which then you fast forward, you know, 20, 30 years, and it makes total sense why women are sweethearts and magnets, because those are sort of the affiliative types of humor, the peacekeeping types of humor, and also the styles that are a little bit more timid, um, especially the sweetheart and using humor. And then, you know, fast forward 20, 30 years, and you have these little boys who have grown into men who are snipers and, um, you know, and stand-ups who are more willing to take people down with their humor. Um, so I think, I think it's, it's totally right on, you guys, that, that it, this starts when we're really young. Because I suppose when you're younger as well, whatever seems to work for you, you continue to do more of that. So if you're getting laughs in one of those four types, then you're just going to keep doing that. And it's just going to become a stronger and stronger a stronger and stronger personality trait. Yeah. It's also not very cool as a young girl to be a class clown. And this is speaking as someone who was the class clown <laughs> of my high school and had no boyfriends. It's so funny, isn't it? Yeah. But I had a lot of fun. So. <laughs> well, good. I mean, uh, yeah, I don't get it. I, I, I suppose they just weren't ready yet. But because I like, I think like funny women are sexy as fuck. Like I think uh, like there's always that that kind of thing of oh he's got to have a good sense of humor and I think it go like why would you want to go out with someone that didn't have a good sense of humor no matter what gender yeah. you are or what your preferences are 
like wanting to have a partner that you can have laughs laughs and jokes with like i don't want to always be the funny one i want you to crack a joke and make me laugh like like you do the work you be the stand-up let me come to your show and laugh like rather than me doing all the work love that and um, there's there's something that i noted down in the book and it was just like a tiny little bit in one of the like one of the bullet points um but i wrote it down because i just think it's so important and it, you said match delivery to content essentially you're saying like you've got to find your own style you can't just go in and start doing a chris rock bit if you're if that's not your style of, de- of delivery yeah yeah so this is why we start the class with um with this self-discovery process where you know jennifer mentioned that we start with a humor audit and really um when students show up to the class they have this orientation towards okay, and now I'm going to go out and be funny or, okay, I have to be like Chris Rock or I have to be like, you know, Ellen DeGeneres or Ali Wong. And it's sort of like, no, 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 no. First, let's figure out what's true for you. What, you know, what is your sense of humor like? What do you find funny? Um, what type of style do you like to, you know, do you like um, writing funny things? Do you, are you really animated when you tell jokes? Do you like to be dry and deadpan? And once people get to know their style then they can start to mine their lives for content and sort of wrap that style around their content. And that's where it starts to feel, that's where it feels authentic, where we see executives get into trouble and, you know, people at work more generally is trying to be funny in ways that they see other people being funny, but not in a way that's authentic to them. And so that's why this sort of self-discovery process is so crucial. Well, if you um, if you guys want to borrow my magazine with my friends quiz in it and kind of adapt that into the course, um, find out how many Chandler Bings you've got, you're very welcome to do that. Um, Thank you so much. That would be, right. honestly, we've just been looking for an invitation <laughs> to use a friend's quiz. Yeah. And um, I would love to have a 1990s quiz, David. So please, yes, definitely cool. send that through. <laughs> I'll, I'll send that over. Um, I know you guys are on a, are on a deadline and you've got a jet. Uh, this was uh, really fun. Maybe we should do a part two at, at uh, some point. Yes. With alcohol and definitely the friends quiz done. Amazing. Yeah. We'll <laughs> each come with our results so that David doesn't have to be the only one. Um, no, this was this was really fun. Thank you guys so much for having us on. We love what you're doing. Um, keep it up and just we're honored to be here. Thank you. If our listeners would like to connect with you or want some information about the book, where can they find you online? Come to humorseriously.com. Um, and whenever you buy a book, you automatically get a Stanford MBA. So it's so worth the investment. It's better than a friend's quiz. That's definitely true. 